Trauma Therapist Podcast, episode 240. Are you ready to become the best version of yourself? Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support, and it is 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. No more worrying about finding the right provider or scheduling appointments. Cerebral brings it all to you whenever and wherever you need it. To get started on your path, towards better mental health, Cerebral is giving you, the Trauma Therapist Podcast listeners, 15% off your first month of online therapy, medication, or both. Get started by going to Cerebral.com slash podcast and use the code the Trauma Therapist. That's Cerebral, C-E-R-E-B-R-A-L.com slash podcast, and don't forget to use the code the Trauma Therapist to get 15% off your first month, make 2024 your best year yet. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Please see site for details. Welcome to the Trauma Therapist Podcast. My name is Guy McPherson, and this is a podcast where I interview thought leaders and game changers in the fields of trauma, addiction, mindfulness, and yoga with the goal of inspiring and educating anyone who works with individuals who've been impacted by trauma. Super excited you're here with me today. Here we go. Hey folks, Guy McPherson here, and first off, thanks so much for taking the time to listen today, and before we get started, I just wanted to share a quick story with you. Actually, it's it's a shift that's been going on uh, within me and uh, what I'm doing here with the Trauma Therapist Project. You know, a few years ago when I began the podcast, my goal was to interview seasoned therapists, seasoned trauma therapists specifically, and to provide a platform for new trauma therapists for learning and education and inspiration. But something happened. You know, the more I interviewed, the more I actually learned and came to realize the importance of not just uh, the information and uh, that, that's necessary to do this work, not just the importance of modalities. Are you tired of spending countless hours buried under mountains of progress notes or clinical notes? It's time to focus on what truly matters, which is providing exceptional care to your clients. Introducing Text Expander, your ultimate solution to help you streamline documentation and boost your productivity. I've been using Text Expander for years, and it's one of the tools I use every single day. If you're a therapist, if you're a coach, any content or text you use on a regular basis in your progress notes, for example, your name, address, or even longer forms, paragraphs of notes, or sections of reports, you can create a shortcut for it. Text Expander automatically populates entire paragraphs of text, saving you valuable time and effort, and it allows you to get back to what truly matters your clients. Text Expander is offering the Trauma Therapist Podcast listeners 20% off when you go to textexpander.com slash trauma. That's textexpander.com slash trauma. Interventions, but of who we are as therapists, as individuals, as, as addiction counselors, as LCSWs, as psychologists, as yogis, as survivors, uh, who, whoever you are out there who's listening to this, you know, and this is the inner work that we really should be doing, I believe, uh, the cultivation of presence and authenticity of exploring our, our own issues, our own traumas, and 
quite frankly, oftentimes this can be daunting. This has become my focus in my work and and, and more specifically in my membership community, Trauma Therapist 2.0. Really, it's about finding the humanity in trauma treatment. And my goal is to invite a therapist on, individuals on, yogis on, uh, trauma workers on who can share not only how they work with trauma clients, but ideas about how they embody this humanity, what they do for their inner work. If you're a new trauma therapist, if you're just getting into this field, if you're looking for support, if you're looking for people to join you on this amazing journey and looking to begin to cultivate that authenticity and presence, I want to invite you to check out uh, Trauma Therapist 2.0. And you can head over to uh, Trauma Therapist 2, that's the number 2.com, Trauma Therapist, the number 2. Um, If this sounds like something exciting for you, I'd love for you to join me. If you're a student, email me. I have a special uh, rate just for you. All right, let's get started. All right, guys, welcome back to the Trauma Therapist Podcast. My name is Guy McPherson, and very excited this morning to finally introduce my guest, Faye Keegan. Faye, welcome. Thank you, Guy. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. So Faye is a clinical social worker, writer, and an amputee who turned her early experiences of trauma, loss, grief, and disability on their head to become a successful therapist, community organizer, business person, political spokesperson. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply co-farmer and mother. Faye has a master's degree in cultural psychology and postgraduate qualifications in couples and family therapy and mediation. Since 1980, Faye has worked in public and private settings across a range of services, and we'll get into those as we get further on into the discussion here. But um, Faye, again, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Uh, Share with our listeners where you're from and where you're calling from, and let's go. Thank you, Guy. Um, I'm calling from Australia, and I am sitting um, at a desk um, in a farmhouse, an old homestead, about three and a half hours north of Sydney. We have a farm uh, on a river um, near a town which is about the size of 20,000 people. It is called Taree, and uh, I'm originally from Sydney, and we moved um, to the mid-north coast area, north of Sydney, um, in 1986. Nice, And nice. We've, we've been here ever since. Okay. So, you know, just to give people a bit of a background, uh, you know, this podcast, really my goal here is to find people who are passionate about doing this work. It's not just therapists, you know, it's uh, addiction counselors or uh, yogis, people who are involved in 
uh, uh, film, for example, meditation, whatever, mindfulness, whatever. And I, I came across your work on Twitter, I think it was, and it just really yes. kind of intrigued me. Thank so, you. yeah. So let's, let's dive in here. What are you doing <laughs> to, to offer a broad question there? What, what do you do? What do I do right now? What I do now is write. Um, and I have a completed manuscript um, which tells the story, my story from uh, when I was 11 years old and I had a traumatic train injury. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that's a tautology because all train injuries are traumatic. And through to the age of 18 when I finished high school. And the reason that I focus on that period of time is because that was because the story is not really about the train accident. It's about the aftermath. Mm. And it is about the way that the aftermath tore my family apart. And the the effects that it had weren't solely because of the accident. They were because of the things that trauma therapists would be so familiar with that um, events don't happen in isolation, that my accident happened in the context of my own parents' um, traumatic experiences as children and the developmental stages that the family was going through um, with two older siblings. You know, during that type period of time, I had an older brother and, and um, Australia, this was back in the 60s and 70s, and um, Australia had conscription for the Vietnam War then, so we had a very traumatic period of time when um, there was the threat that he would be conscripted, and fortunately he missed out. Um, but that that was hard. Um, so was, was, was the, the train accident the kind of catalyst in a sense, or the backdrop? or it, Look, I, I think it was the straw that broke the camel's yeah. back. Um, yeah, I think that I think that my parents were um, able to manage, but this really overloaded the system. Um, part of the the effect of the train accident was that we sued uh, the New South Wales government railways, and that case took five and a half years. And that's another reason why the memoir covers that period of time because the court case is really the the climax of of the story and and it was a traumatic event in itself mm. and um and that played off against my parents um traumas as children because my father lost his home during the depression and became homeless and because his father had a, a workplace injury so again an accident and they couldn't pay the mortgage and they lost their home so he was so uh, frozen with fear about the risk of um, having to sell our home to pay for the court case if we lost. And my mother was an orphan. She was orphaned when she was four or effectively orphaned at the age of four. Her father had been kicked out of home before then and, and wasn't present on the scene. And she ended up back in the Depression years, 1929, going into a state orphanage and then um, into the Catholic system. And it was shocking, uh, absolutely shocking, as you can imagine. And um, so she had this, this, she was a, a, they were both intelligent, passionate and loving parents. My mother had this burning desire for justice. And for her, 
justice had to be done with my accident. So she was prepared to end up living in a caravan if needed mm-hmm. um, to get well, let's, justice. Let's, let's kind of orient. I mean, so I don't know to what degree you want to talk about this accident, but I, no, I, that's, I, it's only a part of the story. Okay. Yeah. But I guess I want to get to the, the, the kind of part of the story that is giving you the inspiration to do what you're doing. I mean, you know, uh, what, yes. what is your message in a sense? Is it about resilience? Is it about overcoming trauma and tragedy to do, to succeed? What do you, what do you, what's your, what's your message you want to give to our listeners, I guess? Resilience is, is one of the best words to sum it up. It's mm-hmm. about hope. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about maintaining a belief in yourself in the face of overwhelming odds and the capacity that, that children have to do that and the creative means that they will use in order to get there. Okay. Um, and, and, and I guess I was really thinking as I wrote the story about what were the things that really gave me this this passion as a child that I would never give up? Um, great question. Let me put that to you. <laughs> Pardon? <laughs> That's a great question, and I want to put that to you. What what what, what are gave those me things? That yeah. Passion? I remember when I was in the first couple of days in hospital, they saved the foot. What what actually happened in the accident is my my. I've, I was thrown out of a train and my foot went in a, a moving wheel. Um, so there was a very unlikely initially they'd save it, but they did. When they did save it, I was told I might lose it in the first few weeks because of gangrene. And then I was told I probably would never walk again. And my immediate thought was they just can't tell me that. They don't know who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, so the book's also about identity, I guess. You know, I had this really strong belief in my ability to overcome odds. And I know that at the age when I said that, I had nothing to base, no logic to base that on. It was purely the magical thinking of a child. But the magical thinking of a child can be powerful, just as powerful as the negative prognoses of experts. And I came up against a lot of negative prognoses as well, um, that as an adult, I've, I've reached milestones where negative predictions had been given for me. And I, I've sort of realized, oh, wow, that's been sitting there all that time and it didn't happen. Now, an example of that is when I was 15, um, an orthopaedic surgeon tried to convince me to have my leg amputated. And this was back in 1971. And I refused to do it. And there were many reasons why I refused to do it. There was the normal reaction of a 15-year-old girl who didn't want to have one leg. Um, there was also, the uh, I had made a vow to my foot in the first days after the accident, that if it didn't get gangrene, I promised to look after it. <laughs> and um, so we had a bond in a right. sense. Like my foot was like, a part, it was part of and separate to me. Mm. And so I, I, couldn't, I couldn't undo that vow to my foot. Um, it wasn't killing me. This was purely a lifestyle choice being put to me. Um, so I persevered. But this doctor said to me, you will lose the foot by the time you're 30. You'll get osteomyelitis and you will lose your foot. And I know that this sat on me like lead as I reached the end of my 20s, um, thinking something dire is going to happen when I reach 30. And um, it didn't. Um, but what did happen was that I realised that the negative things that adults, especially people in, power, in positions of power, say to children can have very damaging effects. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I've 
been conscious of that in my work with children. Well, I think that's, yeah, I mean, I think that's such a great uh, message to reiterate here and and have resonating on this podcast because it's something we often talk about is hope, the power of hope, you know, being the hope in the room. uh, As uh, a former guest, uh, Tama Bryant Davis has just, you know, said, and, and I love that. And it just, again, resonates so much with, with what I think trauma therapists, uh, stand for is being that hope. Where, so you said that this had to do with, in some part, magical thinking. Okay. Yes, so when I was 11, very much. <laughs> okay. So how, how does the, the social worker come into play here? How did I go? Yeah. How did that transition happen? Yeah. Oh, it was a very accidental transition. Um, when I was 16, I was put on an invalid pension and I was told I would never have the physical capacity to work. Um, most of my high school was done in isolation um, at home by correspondence because I physically could not get around school. Um, and so when I went to university, I actually researched what jobs I might be able to do sitting down. And um, it ruled out a lot of things, but social work was included. And I also researched um, where the where – the, I was very determined – where the faculties were located and where I could park and how far I would have to walk because my walking was very restricted. Um, so I, I whittled it down to social work at Sydney University. Guy, I had no idea what I would be doing as a social worker at that time. <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't know. All I knew is that I wanted to go to university because I – I physically couldn't do any other sort of job. It had to be a sitting down job. So, and so it wasn't like this. I mean, just to be clear, it wasn't like this burning desire. I need to help people. I need to help people. I been- did. I did have a burning desire to do a. I mean, I could have become an accountant and I could have sat down, but that wasn't even on the list. Right. So definitely, <laughs> um, the primary list was yes. It has to be with people. I did have a burning desire to do something constructive um, and to be there for children who did not, who found themselves in situations where there was nothing there um, mm. to – where there was nobody there asking them what did they need mm. because that was me. At the time that I had my accident, there was no counselling. I, I had no counselling at all. And in fact um, – when I was in the hospital, my parents could only visit me one hour a day. Wow. And this is immediately after the accident. So I, I'm in a room on my own and I see nobody day in, day out, except for an hour a day and two hours on weekends. Jeez. So, yeah, at the age of 11. So, and being told I'd never walk again. Um, I never wanted, I wanted to do something in the world that would not let that happen to a child again. And, and in a way with, um, I, I did social work in Australia at a time when um, the government we had was one that was very committed to building um, social equity and, and with addressing social justice. And social workers um, had great opportunities to get in and make a difference. But over the decades that I've worked, that has been whittled away. And I, I see a need again to keep that um, that issue burning because I think that uh, services are being cut back Mm -hmm. and it's always the most disadvantaged um, people who lose out, the ones who can't pay. So, so, you know, before, Faye, before you and I were started recording, we, we talked a little bit about what we would talk about. And uh, just to be clear for our listeners, you're not currently practicing social work. 
No, okay. I retired in February this year. Okay. So I, in return, said, okay, so we, we won't really, you know, I won't direct my questions towards the, the clinical so much, quote unquote. But, but I, this has so much relevance for, you know, for, for, for the clinical uh, aspect and application, everything you're saying. I mean, this, this need, uh, to, to be heard as a young kid when something like this yes. happens. Hope. You know, you, you said that there, you didn't get a lot of that, but where did you get this, you know, you said determination and this, this drive. Where that hope did, where did that come from at some point? Uh, do you know, Guy, I, don't know if I've got an absolute simple answer, and I think that it would probably be unconvincing if I did. <laughs> um, I have a number of hunches. Um, my mother worked full time, so she, she, the legacy of her childhood was that despite being very loving and very intelligent, she worked full time. That's not a legacy, but she raged. She had terrible rages. Um, so, because she worked full-time, I was lucky. I went to um, – I was looked after by the most wonderful woman um, who only had sons, and she just absolutely loved me unconditionally. And uh, I really think it was Mrs. Forsyth who gave me that incredible belief in myself mm-hmm. because she was the most nurturing person. Um and I think that was a gift for me that um, I had I had um, someone outside my home who who was like a light, um, always there. And was this like pre and post uh, accident? Um, more pre. That was my contact with her was was all I can remember of my preschool years. I see. And um, some contact post accident, but more, but not constant. Mm-hmm. Not every day, just occasional. Um, but the memory of what she gave me, that that belief in myself. Um, and I was always a very inquisitive child. I always wanted to explore and to have adventures. And uh, if I let the foot take over, that would have ruled that out in my future. You know, I wanted to live my life and have my life and I didn't want my foot to take that away from me. So I used to do bargains with my foot. Like, if you let me do this, I'll let you have tomorrow off. (laughs) (laughs) I went backpacking in 1982 when I was 25 um, around Europe. But um, the way we did it was that um, my foot had two nights a week in a nice hotel where it could rest for 48 hours. And I had the rest of the week, but we would do things like go to the Luxembourg Gardens and in Paris, and we would – I'm talking about my foot like it's another part of me, but it's uh-huh. like I had to talk to it and negotiate. Um, and we would just sit there in the gardens and watch people. I'd, 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 so I'd go around I'd, – I'd travel, but I'd always be traveling with a book, and I would sit, and I was an observer. You I wasn't know, out hiking the trails in Switzerland or anything like that. <laughs> you, no, I'm going to ask you something here, and I don't want this to come off the wrong way, but you was this ever difficult for you? Extraordinarily. Yeah. How did? How, what was that like for you? Um, look, the most there are different stages. I, I think that um, trauma is not something you get over in one hit. You don't have one batch of counselling and and you're better. I think that what happens is that. We discover triggers as we live, mm-hmm. um, and we might skip. Some things might never trigger us off, like 
you know, they might there might be potential triggers out there we never discover. But um, so I've I've had different things that have been problematic at different times. But the very early stage, um, I look. The accident happened in '68, and Elizabeth Kubler Ross's book came out in 1969. Mm. So this whole idea of loss that people can go through, not not just through bereavement, but also because of an injury, just wasn't in people's thinking. And but I know when I read Elizabeth Kubler Ross way way back. I thought that's what was happening to me. The first three years at high school, I started every year going to high school, and I was so hopeful. I I was um, I was hopeful to the point of denial. Like it's as if my foot's better. It's magic. It's over. <laughs> then um, problems would happen, and I'd get angry. Um, I'd end up in hospital with an infection or having. Um, skin grafts to, to cover the um, – the foot was degloved, so the whole of the foot was covered with skin grafts, so I'd end up in hospital having more plastic surgery, and and I'd become depressed, and I'd bargain, and, and then the year would end, and it would all start again the next year until when I hit fourth year at, uni- at high school, so – when I was the year I turned 16 to to make it um, translatable um, for you, um, I just realised, no, it's never going to change. Mm-hmm. So I actually reached acceptance three years afterwards, but I did it myself by doing that, by just roller coasting through those cycles mm-hmm. for all that time. And the things that got me through that year were poetry, playing guitar, reading, a lot of reading, and um and and our dog, um, and his name is Puppy, and he would just sit with me all day, every day, and um, be my best friend. <laughs> when, you know, as you're talking, I, I'd love to hear you share for our listeners, for the people who are, uh, you know, therapists out there, trauma workers out there. What do you think they need to know for situations like this when they've got a kid sitting in front of them? What things might be helpful for them to know? Oh, look, I, I I thought about advice for therapists, but not from that angle. And the first thing that popped into my mind when you asked that question was, it is so hard. And I've worked, I've spent a lot of my life working with children and adolescents because that's where my passion has been. Um, and I think one of the really hard things is children do not know who they can trust and who they cannot trust. Um, part of it is letting letting young people know what how much can they tell you that's just with you. And you've got to make the boundaries very clear for children. Um, if there are issues that you cannot keep between you, you have to let the child know. Because particularly if the child has experienced trauma, the issues of betrayal are significant. <laughs> and if you have a betrayal on top of trauma, um, it it's a lot more, it, it cuts deeper yeah. um, than betraying a confidence, you know, with someone who's not experiencing um, all the issues of trauma. I, I think the other thing is that um, if there are complex um family issues happening and in our family there really was emotional abuse happening looking back um, and I realised when I was at university uh, when I did abnormal psychology at university this this penny dropped um, my mother was depressed <laughs> you know she was profoundly depressed through those years and 
And, um, you know, I went through and I realised I was as well at times, um, probably for a lot of it. So I, I went through a lot of realisations. But um, though often family systems are very private. Um, and especially, I guess, when you've got um, parents like my mother who had unspeakable things happen when they were children and grew up at a time when um, you never spoke outside the family of those things, that loyalty is a huge issue in families. And it's really important to be able to give the child permission to speak in a way where they do not feel guilty or feel the potential of guilt that they may be disloyal to their parents. Because no matter what happens... Um, the parents are the most important person in that child's life and you're there and you're important, but you're not going to be there forever mm -hmm. and their parents will be. Um, so finding a way, a language, a form of expression, whether it's creative play or drawing or expressive work of some kind where the child can share things about what's happening in the family safely. Yeah, you know, as, you, as you're thinking, I'm really mesmerized because I'm thinking a lot about uh, individuals that I'm working with, families, uh, individual clients, and um, I think what you're saying just really cuts to the bone, cuts to the core, uh, so I really appreciate that. How about we kind of do things a little bit uh, backwards here, and let's let's talk about uh, because before we started recording, you said you said you did have a quote that yes, you wanted I to share. <laughs> let's let's jump to that, and then I want to okay. kind of move to um, uh, really what you've got going on. I know you have the book going on, but also let's yes. talk about uh, other things too. So, what what right. is your quote? Well, I had a couple of quotes. You know, I at first um, I just couldn't get out of my head um, the little engine that could. <laughs> um, do you know that old story? Yeah, yeah. The thirties. Um, I think I can, and and I know that when I was learning, it took me six months of physio to learn to walk after the accident. I know I was chanting, "I think I can, I think <laughs> I can," to myself as I was going down the parallel bars in the gym. Um, but that doesn't relate to many people. So, um, two. There were two quotes that came to me. One is, um, uh, the person is never the problem. The problem is the problem. And I think this is really helpful working with children because it takes the problem outside of the child and you can work with them collaboratively and use very creative methods to externalise the problem and then work out very playful ways of, of um, getting that problem to, you know, pulling that problem into line and making sure it doesn't, you know, keep making a mess of the kid's life. It's also a really great way to work with adults um, as well as children on identity issues in particular where trauma has left. And, and I worked with a lot of women who were um, – a lot of my work's been with um, – sexual assault. I established a sexual assault service in the country town where I lived, about 30, where I lived 31 years ago and um, worked with children and adults. And um, so obviously self-blame and guilt and all of those identity issues that run very deep um, are very problematic. And that externalization of the problem by separating it mm -hmm. um, from the person um, is a way of opening space to explore so the what the self-blame is telling themselves about themselves. 
Okay. Uh, so again, the person is never the problem. The problem is the problem. What's the attribution on that quote? Um, that's from Michael White, okay. who was one of the developers of narrative therapy. Right. Um, okay. And that's that's an error. That's a form of therapy that I have found really useful. Um, the area that I live in has a large um, Indigenous population, a large Koori population, um, compared to other areas of Australia. And um, under our um, health um, counselling program in Australia, um, narrative therapy is one of the approved um, interventions to use within with Aboriginal populations. So that gave me permission to be able to sort of go ahead and pursue that interest as well. Awesome. Okay. Uh, you said you had another quote? I did. Okay. I, I do. Um, <laughs> we tell ourselves stories in order to live, and that's from Joan Didion um, from the White Album. And that quote resonates really personally with me because ever since the accident, I really held on to stories about my identity to resist all those discourses about disability. And I, I remember in the early days of hospital, I developed almost a statement of identity without, I mean, that's what a therapist would call it now, but I, that's what I did. I collated um, a statement of who I was before the accident um, because I wanted to hold on to the hopes and the dreams and the wishes and the aspirations of the real me um, before the accident because I had this sense that something had happened and I'd never be the same again. But I didn't want to forget who I was or lose who I was. I wanted to be the person I was and also what's happened to me, but not become a different person because of what happened to me. Right, right. Wow. Faye, let's, let's shift gears here. I know we're kind of uh, winding down on time, but let's talk about uh, what you've got going on now. I, I love your website. It's at Keegan. Dot com dot au and it's f a y k e e g a n n as in Nancy Fakeegan dot com. Yes. Um, so share with our listeners um, what you've got going on there. Okay. Well, um, the big project that I, I have at the moment is is that I've completed a manuscript and and just at the beginning of this year I've um, engaged an agent who is representing me in Australia. Um, with my manuscript and um, it's actually written, it's a memoir written in the first person present tense. So I, I write it in the voice of my 11-year-old self right wow. at the beginning and it opens with me falling out of the train. And then you find out the lead up to that and all the backstory and everything else and go right through to the court case from there on. And and the just came to me that one of the other motivations of writing it was to give an insider's perspective of what PTSD looks like from inside a child's head because it was over the years of working that I realised that I had PTSD. Um, you know, obviously with the reading and working with clients, I kept sort of ticking the boxes in my head saying, oh, right, right, yes, yes, oh, yes, <laughs> I can see that. Um, I mean, I could be so vague and dissociated walking through a shopping centre. In one shop one day, I walked past my 16-year-old daughter Wow. She, she turned around and tapped me on the shoulder and said, Mum, you walked straight past me. Um, so it, it still impacts my life, um, but I work with it. Um, so I wanted to let people know what it's like for a child to have PTSD um, 
when it's not named. And most and most people live with PTSD for some time without it being named. Mm-hmm. Maybe not so many now because there's often earlier intervention. Um, but I felt that that would be a useful tool for a lot of therapists to get that insider's picture. Um, now, that project is sitting there waiting for somebody to pick it up and run with it. And while that's happening, um, I'm working on developing and I'm loving doing this. I didn't realise how much fun it would be. I'm writing um, weekly blog posts. And the objectives that I have with my blogs um, are to connect with a whole, with a very broad community. I guess my sense of belonging is with an amputee community, um, which is fantastic because I had no sense of belonging before I became an amputee because there wasn't a community of people who'd fallen out of trade. Right, right. So there wasn't like a sense of, oh, this is where I belong, you know. Um, now being an amputee, it's like, okay, there are all these other people I can talk to who get where I'm at. Um, so there, there are amputee issues there, but but they're inter- integrated with a whole lot of other issues. And and I guess the early um, uh, stories that I've posted have been um, things like uh, one that I did on the journey of identity, the transition of an of identity for a child going through trauma. And I, I did that piece by looking, by describing what happened to a friend 18 years after the accident, right on the day that was an anniversary. And that was a true event. Um, I... Um, I I had a really strange reaction one day when someone asked me, a new friend, what happened to your foot? And I just came unstuck. And and then I realised as I talked to her that it was the 18th anniversary. What I haven't got in that piece is that later in that day, I said to myself, you know, if you had killed your family, you would be free now. So part of that piece that I wrote was also about guilt, or very much about guilt as well as identity, because my mother blamed me quite... Um, um, Overtly, it wasn't covert. She actually said to me, "Your your foot has destroyed the whole family." Wow! Um, and she said to me, "Your foot will be the death of me." So she she was very damaged. Wow. She did say very very ha- harsh things, and um, so that that story is an example of the kind of thing that I want to unpack from the point of view of looking at trauma and children. Mm. And I'm also very interested in looking at um, issues of um, of exploring lifetime events in families, um, the journeys that people take. I'm passionate about intergenerational issues because of both of my parents. And I've written, I've touched on that a little bit with a piece about my father and his war experiences and how it wasn't until his deathbed two years ago that I heard more about his war years um, other than just the fact that he fought pirates, which is all he used to tell us about his years in the Navy. Um, he made out like he um, was Jack Sparrow. <laughs> so, so once <laughs> again, once, <laughs> yeah, there is a lot here on this on this blog too, and it it's, it really is awesome. Once again, the website's faykegan.com. Faye, let's um, wrap up here with uh, one book recommendation for our listeners. Okay, because I've mentioned children and I have mentioned narrative therapy, um, I'd like to to recommend a book called Playful Approaches to Serious Problems, um, which is a narrative book. And the authors are Jennifer Freeman, David Epstein, and Dean Lobovitz. Um, And it's got beautiful um, case studies 
and um, in it about working with particular children on specific problems. And it also explores some of the ideas in narrative therapy about um, externalising issues and um, reauthoring and working on a counterplot, looking for unique moments that are exceptions to the problem conversation. And um, that that's a very battered book that I've got, which just shows how many times uh-huh. I've pulled it off my sh- So once again, Playful Approaches to Serious Problems, Narrative Therapy with Children and Their Families uh, by David Epstein, Jennifer Freeman, and Dean Lubavitz. Yes. Um, awesome. All right, Faye. I, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this. We had some technical challenges in the we beginning, did. Did. but I'm so glad we uh, overcame them. And it's just been a pleasure to talk to you. I mean, you're, you're obviously you're so inspiring and uh, it's, it's been awesome. So thank you so much. Thank you, Guy. It's been a pleasure for me to have a talk with you too. And um, I've really enjoyed it very much. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. All right, folks, today's episode is brought to you by audible.com. I've teamed up with Audible to get you a free audiobook by going to the traumatherapistproject.com slash free book. That's the traumatherapistproject.com slash free book. They have over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, your Kindle, MP3 player. Look, if you're like me and you love reading and you like getting information wherever you can, whenever you can, from all over the place, this is a no-brainer. They have titles such as Trauma and Recovery by Judith Herman, The Body Keeps a Score by Bessel van der Kolk, and my recommendation most recently is Tribe by Sebastian Junger. Awesome book. They also have a pretty incredible return policy. How do I know this? Because I've used it multiple times. Once you remember, just go in, click on return, and that's it. You get a free book. You get another shot at getting another book. Sound good? Get your free audiobook by going to the traumatherapistproject.com slash free book. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.